study that we've just started in talking about what it means when we read about the blood of the covenant. And this is tying into where we are going uh, in our Sunday morning study as we've returned back to uh, the Gospel of Matthew and we're going to be spending uh, time looking at the final days of Jesus' life. Uh, And in doing so, we're going to read about his institution of the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that we observed last week in our lesson and something that we're going to talk about over these late weeks as we talk about the blood of the covenant, as well as on Sunday morning here as we approach our study of the institution of the Lord's Supper, is that in all of the accounts, when Jesus comes to take the cup, He calls what he is doing and what's to be remembered as my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And just to remind you that every account that we have of the Lord's Supper, the cup is referred to as the blood of the covenant or the new covenant in my blood. And so the question then is, well, what would that have meant to that audience? What do the disciples have thought and what would have first century Christians thought when Jesus said, now, when you come to the cup, here's what I want you to remember. While the bread is the body and then what is happening as we partake of the cup. So those four passages, I think, are useful in that we, we note that It is something more than just simply saying that uh, Jesus' blood was shed, but he points in in his statement to a covenant that was established. Now, uh, I mentioned last week that I think it would be fair to say that there are at least four dimensions that we could point to in the scriptures in what the blood of the covenant is referring to. And so I want to make that disclaimer again, that one single lesson is not me saying When we talk about the blood of the cup, this is the one singular thing you should be thinking about. I think that there's an awful lot of depth in what this is. In fact, so much depth, I thought this was going to be a one lesson deal and turned out as I got into it, I went, wow, I've got four lessons here because there are so many passages that are actually talking about this. But by way of reminder, we noted last time that in that first dimension, we looked at Exodus 24 And quite simply, if we had nothing else from Exodus 24, we would note that the blood of the covenant was a ratification of the covenant between God and his people, and it was sealed with blood. And we pull that forward and see that it is through Jesus' death that this covenant has been ratified and we have been sealed, not with the animal blood like it was in the days of Moses as it was sprinkled and thrown upon the people, but we are pictured as being sprinkled with the blood of his son. And we saw that from passages like in first Peter, as well as in Hebrews, but we can provide a little bit more depth to that as well, because remember that In the blood of the covenant, the people were responding to the blood being thrown upon them. And they were saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We are committing ourselves to our end of the covenant. God is faithful to his covenant. And we are responding to God by saying, we will be faithful to the covenant. And so likewise, in partaking of the cup, it is is a recommitting of ourselves to the covenant and saying that we belong to it and we will do what God has asked us to do. We also recognize in that picture from Exodus 24 that the blood of the covenant reminds us that's the only way we can have fellowship with God. It's the 
the only way we can draw close to God without that covenant being established with his blood, we would be worthy of judgment and death. But rather than having to stay far away in fear, we are allowed to come near the mountain. We are able to come near to God and enjoy that fellowship with him. And so that's what we looked at last week as one of the very, I think, really important dimensions that's given to us in Exodus 24 regarding the blood of the covenant. Now let's talk about a second dimension. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to go to Zechariah chapter 9. That's where we're going to spend our time. Really excited to hear that there's a lot of you who are using our monthly Bible reading and are reading ahead and already digging in. I think that's, that's really exciting that you can uh, do that ahead of time and kind of have a familiarity with the text and be prepared like that. So I think that's a wonderful thing. I'm really excited that uh, there's so many of you that are taking advantage of that. Zechariah 9. Now, you might think, Zechariah, oh no, this is, this is one of those hard books. This is a book of visions and prophecies and all kinds of amazing pictures that are rather difficult for us to sometimes understand. But let's talk a little bit about what is happening in the book of Zechariah. You might remember that Zechariah is a prophet who is sent by God at the exact same time as a prophet Haggai. He sends the two of them Because though the people have returned from Babylonian exile and they've laid the temple foundation, they have not continued to do the work of rebuilding the temple. The Persian Empire had shut down that work, and so that work had stopped now for decades. And so around 520 BC, Haggai and Zechariah are sent by God as prophets to tell the people they need to rebuild. Haggai is very direct in his message. You just need to do it. Zechariah, his pictures are very different because rather than it being sermons like Haggai, he just starts telling visions and starts having some amazing pictures of what's going to happen when Christ comes. And all of that was supposed to be an encouragement to them that if you will do the work and you will finish this temple and not despise these small things, God had great things in store for them. One of those great things that's pictured is here in Zechariah 9. Now, if you look at Zechariah 9 and you look at verse 9, this verse might sound fairly familiar to you. Zechariah 9 and verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey? On a colt, the foal of a donkey. We uh, were just recently in Matthew this last year, and we saw this as pictured as the triumphal entry of Christ. Matthew says, here's that fulfillment of that very picture. And so Zechariah 9 is yet another passage that has a messianic expectation, a messianic prophecy. Here's what's going to happen when Christ comes. And you might remember That in that triumphal scene, the people are shouting out, Hosanna, son of David. There, got the palm fronds, and he is riding in. This is his, his, his triumphal scene as it pictures a king coming to establish his rule. And you'll notice in verse 10, you see that very picture in Zechariah. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. 
His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You have a picture of when Christ comes, he's not going to rule just Jerusalem. He's not going to rule a little plot of land in Palestine. He's going to rule from sea to sea. It's going to be the whole creation. It's going to be the whole earth when he comes. And so verse 9 pictures his arrival. Verse 10 pictures his authority. He is going to rule over all of the earth. Now, usually when we study his triumphal entry, that's kind of where we stop. But I want you to notice the next sentence in verse 11. As for you also... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. I think it is amazing to note that here is a picture of what God says he's going to do. And there are two important pictures that I want you to notice. The first picture that is very important is to see that you have an image of prisoners. He says in verse 11 that he is for me, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, that is a peculiar image because you might read this and go, well, okay, you know, in the Old Testament, we see them. Being imprisoned, we see them being captive, we see them being taken as exiles, and so maybe it's talking about setting the people free from some kind of captivity. But I want you to think about that in the days of Zechariah, their captivity was already over. They are already back in the land, they've already started the rebuilding of the temple with the foundation, but they're being told to continue that work and to finish the temple. So They're already free on the land in that sense that they wouldn't be prisoners in in that way. And yet God says, you're prisoners, you're in this waterless pit, you're in this abyss, but I'm calling for you to be set free. And not only are you going to be set free, but he says in verse 12, you're going to return to your stronghold. Notice he calls them prisoners again. He says, I mean, you're going to return to the stronghold, oh, prisoners of hope. And I'm going to give you restoration. So let's talk about this picture for a minute. Because one of the things that the scriptures emphasize in the coming of Christ is a picture of him setting people free. Isaiah is a major messianic chapter in chapter 42. And listen to the wording there. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah prophesies there's a day coming when Christ will come and he's going to set the prisoners free. And Isaiah 42 was quoted in a number of places in the New Testament to refer to the arrival of Christ. Same thing in Isaiah 61. That should say Isaiah 61. We're missing a one up there. That should be Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. You might remember in Luke 4, 
Jesus is in Nazareth. He unrolls a scroll, finds that passage, reads it, and then says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing and sits down. <laughs> you go, All right. The, the, the proclamation of liberty to the captives, of setting people free from the prisons, to set them free from darkness. He says, that has happened because I have come. And so the Old Testament is constantly pointing to this future hope of saying, there's going to be a setting free, a liberation of the captives and the prisoners who are sitting in darkness and who are bound in chains. So here's the big problem. Everybody goes, well, I'm not in prison. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't have any chains. What do you mean I'm captive? What do you mean I'm in prison? What do you mean I'm bound in darkness? What could you possibly be talking about? And you might remember that Jesus had that very interaction when he was talking to the people. In John chapter 8, he makes this very point in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, please note, he said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now remember what the people say. We're the offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? They're having an argument with Jesus. They're, they're set you free, what do you mean? We're the people of God. We're the offspring of Abraham. We've always been free. We have never been enslaved to anybody. And I want you to know that Jesus does not give a response and go, okay, well, what about Egypt and what about the Seleucids and what about the Persians and the Babylonians and the Romans right now? He doesn't give them a history tour. Notice what he just does. He just goes, everyone who practices sin is a slave. Here's what you don't understand. Sin enslaves. And our problem is we don't see that. God is coming along saying, hey, a great day is coming when Christ arrives. People are going to be set free from the prisons. They're going to come out of darkness and go into light and the shackles are going to fall off and they're going to enjoy freedom. And the whole world says back to God, what do you mean freedom? We're free already. <laughs> well, what do you mean that, that we're in darkness? What do you mean that we're captive? And here, even in Jesus' day, people who knew the scriptures and believed in Jesus were told, made the very argument back, what do you mean enslaved? How dare you say that we are enslaved? But this is the picture that is happening for us here back in Zechariah 9, as well as the picture that is being given in the book of Isaiah. I want you to come back to Zechariah 9, and I want you to look carefully at verse 11. Because at the end of verse 11, he says, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. But I want you to notice how that's able to happen. Notice the beginning of verse 11 says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set you free. The freedom that Israel was being promised, the freedom that was going to be accomplished when Christ came as Zechariah is looking down the horizon and saying back in verse 9, when he comes, he will ride in on a donkey 
And it's going to be fanfare and triumphal. And when he comes, his rule is going to be from sea to sea. It's not going to be a small piece of land. It's not going to be a single city. He's going to rule over all the earth. And when he comes, he's going to set you free and release you from the darkness of sin because of the blood of the covenant. Because of the covenant that has been made with his blood, that is how God is going to set people free. This is a very important picture that God is providing us in regards to how God was going to accomplish setting people free. You're already getting a picture. One, there needs to be a covenant that can do this. Because as we come to the New Testament, what is the scriptures telling you? You're not finding freedom in Moses' law. You're not going to find any freedom there. You're finding the problem of sin. You are finding the problem of being unable to be right before God. A new covenant needs to come. But that new covenant has to be established not with the blood of animals. But it's going to require the death of God himself. That is what is so fascinating about the imagery of calling it the blood of the covenant is that this covenant is going to be established through the death of his only son. So our first big point that I want us to capture from this is that it is only because of the blood of the covenant that we are able to be set free. But then notice what it says in verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. There is a major hope that God puts forward. I want you to notice that God does not say in verse 11, okay, because of the blood of the covenant, you're set free, you're fine, you're good to go. That's the end of the story. What I want you to see is then he pushes forward and says in verse 12, Now return to your stronghold. Who or what do you think he's referring to? (laughs) The people have gone far from God. In fact, you're in the days of Zechariah and Haggai. I mean, we just got done with Malachi, who are just a, a few decades later. And remember the heart of the people and how they've gone so far from God. They find worship a weariness. They don't even want to be there. And he's saying, all right, you've been set free because of the blood of the covenant. Now return back to your fortress. Return back to your strength. Return back to your stronghold. God himself. And notice the rest of verse 12. What's God going to do? He's going to restore you. And he's going to restore you more than where you were in the first place. He's going to restore double to you or twice over is what the, the text tells us. There's a picture here of God saying, I'm setting you free so that you can enjoy this freedom so that you are able to come back to me and enjoy a restoration that you can't have if you stay in your sins. Now, this is what the New Testament is filled with. And I mean, we could be here for a really long time. Promise we're not going to do that. I'm only going to do Romans 6, three passages out of Romans 6, but we could do the vast majority of Romans and Galatians, which fills the weight of this idea about the freedom that God has given us in Christ in regards to our sins. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, 
we know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So why are we getting rid of the old self? Why is it crucified? Why is it brought to nothing? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. This is a critical point that the, 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 the Apostle Paul makes here is to tell us that we are being set free. You don't have to stay in the life of sin. You are no longer bound. You have been set free to serve God. And that's where he goes with this for Romans 6 verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You can now live for God. You don't have to be enslaved by your passions and your desires. You don't have to be captured by sin. Christ has come. He has unleashed those shackles. He's taken you out of the darkness. And you are free now to serve God as a servant of his. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Stop right there. He goes, how was your life going? When you were slaves of sin, things going great? No, he's, he's, he's making an observation. You were free in regards to righteousness, but what was the fruit of all of those sins? Well, we, we've talked about that. Oh, I don't know, guilt, shame, condemnation, eternal punishment. I mean, we, we can go on about all the things that happen as we give ourselves over to sin. But he's saying, you don't have to have that. The end of those things brings about death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord our whole picture of Romans 6 is the apostle Paul trying to say if you were at the beginning of chapter 6 don't you know what it means that you're baptized don't you know that that means you get to walk a new life because the, the, the bonds of sin and all that you were tied to, those chains have dropped and now you are free to serve God. And the life of sin being a life of slavery and shame no longer has to be your life anymore. So what I want us to do is what I'm going to try to do, because I know this is almost this, this is a lot of information. I'm going to try to keep at the end of each lesson recapping a summary of each of these dimensions so that maybe by the time we're at the fourth dimension, we can kind of have some kind of synthesis together of how to hold this picture together. So we talked about with our first dimension, what we are keeping in mind in regards to taking the cup and Jesus saying, this is the blood of uh, the new covenant, or this is the covenant in my blood. We're remembering that this is the covenant relationship that now was established through his death. 
that covenant was put into effect so that we can draw near to him and we are proclaiming our commitment to him. Then tonight, our second dimension is that we've been set free from sin. We've been set free from the slavery and been given the victory that we need to be able to live a new life. You know, side point, 30 minute side sermon that I want you to do in your head. What great hope God gives to us and says, you don't have to live that life anymore. I've set you free. You have victory over that life. That old self was crucified with its passions and its desires. And that's what your baptism means is that it's dead and you're alive to God. And he's given you the victory and you're living for him. And when you take the cup, you're remembering he broke those chains off of you and you're living for him now. That is the essence of when he says, because of the blood of the covenant, I've set the prisoners free. Because of the blood of the covenant, I'm restoring to you, devil. Because of the blood of the covenant, you now have hope and you now have victory in what Christ was able to accomplish. The devil does not need to have victory over your life anymore. You've been set free. Do not let Satan deceive you into saying, you know, I've got these sins that I can't ever overcome. That's a lie. Because what you're seeing Christ say is because of my covenant that was established through my death, you can be free. And we remember that when we come together and we partake. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, it is, it is a, an absolute rich, rich thing to think about the depth that you provided when you told us what your covenant would accomplish through the blood of your son. And Lord, it is a wonderful thing that we are to able to sit back and enjoy the wonderful blessings of this covenant. And that every week, Lord, we are able to reflect on how we are able to draw near to you, how we have been sealed as your children through your son's blood, how you have set us free from our sins. You have brought us into the light and made it possible for us to live in newness of life, a victorious life over sin and all that had kept us from being in relationship with you. Lord, thank you so much for the freedom that we have as we serve you. And Lord, I pray that one of the things that we never take for granted and that we are mindful of each Lord's day when we partake is this wonderful freedom that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that you forgive us for when we have not returned back to you, our stronghold, but rather have returned to the life of sin. Forgive us for how often we see our freedom as a means to satisfy ourselves rather than seeking your will. Forgive us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we will see our freedom as not only a new hope for our lives, but a freedom to come back to you, our Father, our strength, and our stronghold, to follow you faithfully and to love you until we can go home to be with you. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll sing an invitation song. That is dimension two of the blood of the covenant. Lord willing, part three next week, and we'll look at yet another 
picture, we'll move forward into the New Testament and we will look at what the writer of Hebrews says about the blood of the covenant because he also has some important instructions about what that means for us and what we are ultimately remembering in the death of his son. And uh, looking forward, I think this Sunday morning we're going to be doing our our section in Matthew will be on the Lord's Supper. So this is all going to fold together really nicely in our worship next week. All right, if you're uh, needing to come back to the Lord Jesus tonight, we want to give that an opportunity to you to not be a slave to sin any longer. Do not allow yourself to go back to that, but instead enjoy the freedom that God has given you. Turn away from those sins. And if you haven't been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, today is the day to do that. Can we help you in any way? You can come now while we stand and while we sing.